those words are easy to sing, but when our hour of crisis comes, we'll know that though we can resolve and should resolve that we will follow the Lord come what may and not turn back, we'll realize that if we don't turn back, it will be because of Him and not because of us. Mark chapter 13 is where we're going to be this evening. Mark chapter 13, we're in a study, finishing up a study in the life of Christ, that we're not coming to the end of his life, we're coming to the end of our study and looking at what is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Jesus and the Twelve were leaving the temple area on the Tuesday before he was crucified, and the disciples commented on the magnificence of the temple, to which Jesus replied that the temple and all its buildings would be completely destroyed, and we know that happened in AD 70 when Titus led the Roman army uh, to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple. But as Jesus continued his journey, he went to the Mount of Olives and he sat down and Peter, Andrew and James and John came up to him and asked, you know, when is this going to happen? The destruction of the temple and what will be the signs that will indicate that the end of this age is at hand and you are returning? When shall these things be? Matthew records it. And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world, the end of the age? And so Jesus answered their question. And of course, Matthew gives us the fuller account of Jesus' um, teaching, but we're sticking primarily to what Mark tells us. But as he spoke, and we looked at this last Sunday evening, he spoke about what he refers to as the beginning of sorrows. And he uses that term that speaks of birth pangs, of labor that a woman goes through before she gives birth. And uh, that these things would characterize the entire period of the last days, from the time of Christ's ascension into heaven until His coming again, that these are the things that are going to happen even during the seven years of tribulation. Um, these are things that will occur then. And as he mentions the, the things that are the birth pangs, the, the wars and rumors of wars, and the rising of nation against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and famines and earthquakes and troubles that would come on the world. He calls these the beginning of sorrows. And we noted the fact that, that labor pains increase in frequency and intensity. And that will be the case with these things that they will increase throughout this age in which we live, these last days, in frequency and intensity. And the closer you draw to the end, the more frequent and the more intense they will be. So that when you come to that seven years of tribulation, then these things just um, escalate and again, I think certainly we know that during the tribulation period it's going to be an awful time to dwell on the earth. But I think the Lord is warning us that even before that time that things are going to get worse and worse. And the generation that is living at the time of the rapture, and it could be us, but I think that, uh, there's, that, that we should expect that things are going to get worse and worse and that there could be troubles such as we have never known before the Lord comes again. And we know that Jesus could come and rapture the church in any moment, and I'm not denying that. Um, I believe that. But as long as the Lord tarries, we should expect that things are not going to get better, but they're going to get worse. But not until he comes to verse 14, as this Marx records it, do we see the events that are near the very end, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains and so forth. And so, and we believe that is going to occur at the midpoint in the tribulation period. And we'll, we'll address that when we get to that point. But I, I want to, as we continue going through this, 
We're going to back up and beginning verse 9 tonight and looking through down through verse 13. Jesus, after having given them the birth pangs, the signs that uh, the end is drawing near that would increase in frequency and intensity, then He warns them to expect suffering. Notice in verse 9 He says, But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten, and ye shall be brought before rulers and kings for My sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. But when they shall lead you and deliver you up, take no thought beforehand what you shall speak, neither do you premeditate. But whatsoever shall be given you in that hour, that speak ye, for it is not ye that speak, but the Holy Ghost. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son, and children shall rise up against their parents, and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved." He reminds them, or He warns them, that they would suffer for His sake because they were His disciples. Verse 9, He says, you know, they will deliver you, they'll do all these things for My sake. And in verse 13, He says, you'll be hated of all men. <clears throat> That's a pretty um, uh, all-encompassing statement. Jesus said, as the time of the end draws near, or throughout this age, as we're anticipating the, the end of the age, that those who know Christ as Savior are going to suffer simply because they are Christians, and that the vast majority of people will hate us simply because we are followers of Jesus Christ. And this isn't the first time that the Lord had told the disciples to expect suffering. We won't look at it uh, tonight, but if you go back to Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 22, you see some of these same um, statements that Jesus made to the disciples as He was sending them out on a preaching tour while He was still on earth. And he's, he's, as He was preparing them for that, He told them some of these very same things. Jesus often repeated Himself. He had told them this before. Now, now He's near the cross and He's telling them again. And even the very night before He is crucified, He's going to tell them this again. In John chapter 15, He says, If the world hate you, you know that it hated Me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love his own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Jesus wasn't entirely negative. He said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you, but there are those who will believe. They have kept my saying, and they'll listen to you. They've listened to me, and there'll be people who will listen to you, just like they've rejected me, and there'll be people who reject you. But all these things, he says, they'll do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. We are not immune to suffering. Matter of fact, we, even today, we sitting here tonight, and American believers should expect suffering simply because we are Christians. Now, Peter wrote in his first letter to the church, he said, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. I wonder, would we feel like it was a strange thing if tomorrow someone knocked on your door, an official came and knocked on your door, and you answered the door, and it's maybe a police officer, and he says, you're under arrest, and you say, you know, what's the charge? And he says, you know, you, um, you were out here in some public venue and you quoted scripture to somebody and they got offended and we're here to arrest you for that. 
Would you think that was strange? You would think, what in the world's going on? I mean, this is America. This is the land of freedom. This is not right. And granted, we have freedoms. But Peter says, you know, don't be surprised. And, and <clears throat> it, it will happen. And he says, but rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, happy or blessed are ye. For the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, you are blessed when men speak evil of you and they persecute you for His name's sake. And Peter writes the same thing. If you are reproached for Christ, happy are ye. The Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their party is evil spoken of, but on your party is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, as an evildoer, as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, simply because he is a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. If tomorrow someone came and arrested you for some stand that you had taken as a Christian, our, ten our temptation, our tendency might be, if we're being led out of our home or somewhere even out in the, in the community and we're arrested and we're put in handcuffs and led off to the patrol car, our, our tendency would be to hang our heads in shame. And Peter says, don't be ashamed. Hold your head up high. If you haven't done anything wrong, you know, as long as we haven't, he says, now don't suffer as a sinner. Don't suffer for actual wrongdoing. But if your wrong is simply taking a stand for Christ, and there's a way to do that, but if that's the reason you're simply suffering because you're a Christian, don't be ashamed of that. But glorify God in that. <clears throat> we have been largely spared in America of any real serious suffering. There have been Christians who have been called a lot of names, maybe out on visitation had a door slammed in their face, uh, maybe even, you know, in some cases lost a job because of their stand as a Christian because it was known they were a Christian or they tried to be a witness or do something on the job and, and they lost their job. But for the most part, we've been spared in America. But again, the warning is to prepare us because it could happen and it could happen at any moment. I mean, it could, everything could change tomorrow. You could wake up tomorrow and it's all different. It could happen that quickly. And so Jesus is preparing the disciples, don't be surprised. Because as soon as he ascends back up into heaven, it's not long after that before this persecution begins in their lives. And Jesus is preparing them for that. And it could come at any moment even for us. And when it does, again, we shouldn't be surprised. We should expect it. Thankful for every day that we live that we don't have to deal with it. But when it happens, if it happens in our lifetime, it will happen uh, unless Jesus comes again there's going to be people in America who are going to experience this. And it may be us, it may be our children, it may be our grandchildren, but things, things continue going like they're going. This is going to happen. And so when it happens, we shouldn't be surprised that it happened. We shouldn't be overwhelmed by it, but we should be expecting it. And so Jesus prepares them, take heed to yourselves. And as he prepares them for suffering, he first of all tells them, um, the perpetrators, what I'm going to call the perpetrators of their suffering. So, I don't know why, again, my thing's not working. But um, who is it that's going to produce this suffering? So you notice what he says again in verse 9. They'll deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues you'll be beaten. So the first um, category of 
the people that would persecute believers, those who follow Christ, is what we might call the religious establishment, the church, the, the visible organized church. We wouldn't expect necessarily that as Christians we would suffer at the hands of others who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, but the Lord said that's exactly what's going to happen. Those councils and synagogues were Jewish religious leaders. Every town, every city and every town had a, its own Sanhedrin, its own council, and its own synagogue. And when there was someone broke the law of Moses or they, they said things, they declared things that, were, that, that they were believed to be apostasy, false teaching, this, the local Sanhedrin could punish them and the punishment was that 40 stripes save one, 39 stripes. When you read the life of Paul, this is what Paul's doing. He believes that the, those who are preaching the name of Jesus Christ are preaching error, that they're preaching false doctrine. He doesn't believe that Jesus is the Christ. He <clears throat> continues to uphold the law, and so he goes around persecuting the church, persecuting believers. Paul's a Pharisee. He is a religious leader in his day. You know, he, today he would be like a, a, a bishop or a, 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 some leader in the established church. But uh, he's going around and he is persecuting believers. And um, he says uh, in Acts 22 and verse 19, as he's giving his testimony when he is a prisoner, he said, I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on the Lord Jesus. I beat them in every synagogue as Paul went from town to town and he arrested believers and he brought them before the local uh, council and they you know, asked them, what are you teaching? And they would declare that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that their only way of salvation was not through the law but through faith in Jesus Christ and you're a heretic. And so they would beat them and so they would give them those 39 stripes right there in that town. Paul said, this is what I did. And then Paul got saved and the tables are turned. And now Paul's not the one meeting out the punishment. Paul is the one receiving the punishment. And so he writes in 2 Corinthians 11, 11 and verse 24 that five times from the Jews he had received 40 stripes save one. We don't have an account of any of that. We, don't, we, we read of Paul suffering and even uh, one time being beaten and imprisoned, but it wasn't at the hands of the Jews. So there was somewhere in Paul's life after he was saved, five different times he was brought before a local council, the Sanhedrin, and he received those 39 stripes. Can you imagine what the Apostle Paul's back looked like because he had suffered these things at the hands of um, those religious leaders after he had come to know Christ as Savior. And so it's often going to be, the Lord Jesus said, the, um, the church, the, the, the visible church that will be those who are persecuting believers. And throughout church history, um, this has been the case. You know, read about um, John Huss, who was a martyr for the cause of Christ. Who was it that put him to death? Well, it was a combination of the church and the state because they were joined together. That's, there was a state church, and the state and the church were one, and so they put him to death. Martin Luther suffered at the hands of the state church. I'm reading right now a, a book entitled The Letters of Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford, Scottish pastor um, in the 1600s, and um, it, he was an evangelical. 
And when the evangelicals fell out of favor with the state church and the state government, um, these evangelicals were forbidden to preach. And Rutherford was taken, he was forbidden to preach in his church. He was exiled to Aberdeen, Scotland. He was forbidden to preach there for two years. He was there. He couldn't, he was, he, he, he was um, not allowed to preach. And, you know, he writes out of that experience of suffering for Christ. And though he didn't suffer like Martin Luther or John Huss or others, even those that were martyred or those that suffered in other ways for their faith, but he was suffering simply because he was preaching the truth, because uh, he was belonged to Jesus Christ and proclaiming the truth. And he's suffering, but he's suffering at the hands of the established church. In the tribulation, the church, the established church of the Antichrist, will persecute the faithful church of God. We read about that in Revelation chapter 17. The day will come, and it's happened in other parts of the world. It'll happen in America. Probably uh, the way that it will happen in saying this, and I could be totally off base, but I think the way that it will happen in America is that we will preach a biblical morality, and because our society is more and more embracing a, an ungodly morality, we will, you know, it's hate speech to go out and declare what the Bible says about morality and immorality, and we will then be... Um, brought up on charges of hate speech and it will and and it it will there will be those who are identify as Christians who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and many of them even preachers of Jesus Christ but they are they are false prophets they are wolves in sheep's clothing but they will be part of the they will go along and say yes the the society and the and the 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 um, cultural acceptance of immorality and a godless um, moral lifestyle that, um, that, hey, God doesn't forbid that. God doesn't condemn that. And these who do, they're intolerant and they're not true followers of Jesus Christ. And, and the true believers who embrace the word of God will be persecuted simply because they will stand for truth and for God. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. Even as we see it, the the the, the the attitude changing in America. Jesus said, take heed to yourselves. It shouldn't surprise us. Peter said, don't be surprised at this fiery trial, which is the trial of some strange thing happened unto you. This is what we should expect. Not only would it come from the religious establishment, but also even local magistrates. In verse 9, the word rulers. You should be brought before rulers. It's a word that can mean governors. It, has, it suggests a more local government. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 10 as he was preparing the disciples to go out and warning them he said you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles and so we read that Jesus was trod before Pilate the Roman governor and Paul stood before two different Roman governors Felix and Festus and so many times the, the, the persecution the opposition will come from even not only the established church but even local more local um, or statewide leaders. It was interesting, we heard back in, in uh, September at the VAIB meeting, the Virginia Assembly of Independent Baptists, their annual meeting, um, a man by the name of Dan Zacharias spoke, and we're going to try to get him to come here and speak here in our church at some point in the future, but he is the head of the Old Dominion Association of Christian Schools. 
but he told of something that happened at Bethel Baptist Church down in Hampton. And um, I'm pulling this from memory, so if I don't have all the facts exactly right, the, the, the basics of what I'm saying is right. I know um, some of the intimate, in, in, intense details, the um, specific details I may not have right, but, but they were having summer camp, day camp. This is a church activity. And someone, an inspector, and I think it was from the Virginia Department of Education, showed up one day and said, I'm here to inspect your day camp. And um, went to the, of course, they, they went as they came and, and went there, they went to the church secretary, and uh, they had been trained um, and expecting that they may face opposition. She said, you can't, I'm sorry, I cannot let you do that. They had no jurisdiction to do that. They had no right to do that. And she stopped them. And then called the pastor, and he came in and dealt with them, and, and just basically told this lady from the Department of Education, I'm sorry, but you, you have no right to inspect our day camp. You have no jurisdiction here. You have no right here. <clears throat> and she went away. She didn't agree. She, she, she um, let them know that she didn't agree, but she, she left. And, um, but in, in, in the process, before she left, they called Dan Zachariah to get him uh, his input, and he ended up talking to this lady on the phone and explaining to her the law and why she had no right to do what she was trying to do. And um, ultimately, the, the end result was that um, I think they sent a letter to the Department of Education, and they ended up apologizing for what they had done. But the point is, they tried. And they're going to keep trying because they hate us, and they want to silence us, and they want to close down our churches, and they're going to want to close down our Christian schools simply because we are followers of Jesus Christ. They're going to keep trying. And, and the challenge for us is, because we are law-abiding citizens and we want to do right, is that you know, when somebody from the government shows up, you, you, you think, well, you know, they have a right. But we, so we need to know what rights they have and what rights they don't have. And to be ready to stand up for what is right but it shouldn't surprise us, you know, if someday somebody walks in. They would love to be able to require us to get a license to operate our nursery in church. It shouldn't surprise us if one Sunday somebody from the Department of Education showed up and said, hey, I want to inspect your Sunday school. It's a school, right? It's part of education. You're educating children. And... Um, we have a right to inspect and be sure that <clears throat> what you're teaching these kids is right. And they would come, we shouldn't be surprised at that. Because those who would perpetrate suffering for believers will often be even local, maybe state or even local officials that would come. And it could come in, in that kind of a form. And then Jesus says not only the religious establishment and more local uh, governors and things like that, but even kings, heads of state, federal officials, and again, Paul stood before Nero, the very head of the Roman Empire. Uh, he was on trial before Nero be simply because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. You may be um, familiar with what's going on over in Finland. There's a, a woman, a 62-year-old doctor and grandmother of seven who is a member of parliament, um, P-A-I-V-I, Pavi Rasinen maybe, but anyway... Um, she, along with a, ma a man named John Pujola, let's just give him an English name, who's a Lutheran bishop, they have been tried twice for hate crimes because they expressed bib biblical views regarding homosexuality. They were brought to court 
again, for hate speech by the government of Finland. And it was tried in, in the lower courts, and they were acquitted. And so it was appealed to a higher court, and again, they were acquitted. And it may end up going to the Supreme Court of Finland, and they may be tried a third time. And hopefully the Supreme Court, if it comes before the Supreme Court of Finland, they will uphold their right to express their religious beliefs even when it goes against um, the culture and the, what is accepted by society. But understand that this is going on even now in Europe, and we're following Europe. So it's going to happen here eventually. And Jesus said, when it does, when, when you are, because you are my follower, now you are a considered by the ch established church and the local governments and the, even the, the uh, federal government, you're considered to be a, a, a lawbreaker and uh, then expect that even your family members may turn against you. Brothers and sons and children will betray family members even to death, Jesus said. We, again, I was reminded as I thought about that during COVID, government or officials were encouraging you, if you see somebody breaking our regulations, uh, then turn them in. And so how much more so when um, we're actually considered lawbreakers simply because we're Christians and we take a stand for biblical truth? And, and don't be surprised, Jesus said, if even shock one of your own family members turns you in. How could they do that? And there may be any number of reasons why, but we should not be surprised even if that's what happens. And Jesus told the disciples in, John, in Matthew chapter 10 as he's sending them out, he said, whoever loves father or mother or sister or brother more than me is not worthy of me. The Lord is saying, you need to be willing to stand for me and to follow me and uphold truth even if it means you become an enemy of your family, and even if it means a family member ends up turning you in to the government, you're arrested because of some, something a family member did. Do you love me more than you love them? And so, in so many different, from so many different directions, this suffering may come. But the second thing that we need to note is there is a reason for that suffering. There's a purpose in it. God does not do things capriciously. He doesn't do things without reason. And if he allows us to suffer simply because we are his followers, there is a reason for that, and it is to spread the gospel throughout the world. Again, in verse 10, he says, and this gospel must first be published among all nations. It is God's purpose in this age that the gospel be given to the world, all nations, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants the entire world to hear the gospel. The, God, the Great Commission is to take the gospel to the whole world. Acts 1.8, you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. As Luke records the Great Commission, he says, and that repentance and remissions of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And so what do we read in the book of Acts? That the early church, as, as, as Jews are getting saved, as the apostles on the day of Pentecost preached the gospel, and 3,000 are saved, and then later 5,000 are saved, and, and daily the Lord is adding to the church, and people are being saved, and the church is growing, and what are they doing? They're hanging out in Jerusalem, and they're not leaving. The Great Commission is Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They're hanging out in Jerusalem. So what happens? Well, along comes a man by the name of Saul. First it's Stephen, 
that is put to death. And then Saul begins to, to, to this, this, this um, plan of you know, going out and finding believers and persecuting them. And so what happens, Acts chapter 8, at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Jesus said, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria. And when they wouldn't leave Jerusalem, the Lord used persecution to drive them out to Judea and Samaria. And so it tells us that they that were scattered abroad in Judea and Samaria, whenever we're preaching the, the word. And so we read about Philip who goes to the Samaritans and he preaches the gospel and they get saved. And he goes down to uh, Gaza, which is desert, and there he preaches to an Ethiopian eunuch, and he gets saved, and he takes the gospel down to Ethiopia. And in Acts chapter 11, we read that they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the gospel. Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. When they were come to Antioch, they spoke to the Grecians, that is the, the Greek-speaking Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them. A great number believed and turned unto the Lord. And so the, the gospel spreads to Antioch. And from there we know that Paul and Silas, or Paul and Barnabas first, and then Paul and Silas. And Paul later on his own in the third journey, he takes the gospel to the world. But what was it that got the gospel out of Jerusalem and to all nations in that day? It was persecution. And so Jesus said the gospel must first be preached. What is the gospel? It's the good news that Christ died for the sins of the world. And Jesus said the gospel, what's the next word, verse 10 of Mark 13, the gospel must first be preached. God said the gospel is going to go to the world. Before Jesus comes again, the world's going to hear the gospel. Now that doesn't necessarily mean before the rapture, although um, there, has been, there have been many missionary movements throughout this church age where the gospel has gone to the world. And most recently, you know, in, in the American church has sent out missionaries since World War II. Our days are waning now. God will raise up missionaries in other parts of the world to be his preachers. But uh, taking the gospel to the world, and um, it is God's desire that men hear the, hear the gospel and be saved. And in the tribulation period, because God wants all men to hear the gospel, during the tribulation period in Revelation 14, we read about an angel who flies in heaven having the everlasting gospel and to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So God is so desirous that men be saved that even during that awful time of God's judgment on the earth, He's not just going to use men to preach His gospel, but for the only time that I know of that He'll ever do this, He's going to use an angel who's going to fly all over the world and preach the gospel so that everybody has an opportunity to be saved. And Jesus said, you notice again in verse 10 of Mark 13, the gospel must first, before the end of the age, first the gospel must be published among all nations. And then the end of the age can come. And not until then. But he says, you know, when, take heed to yourselves because you're going to be delivered up to the councils and the synagogues. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be brought before rulers and kings for my name's sake because you're a follower of mine and you will testify against them. You will have an opportunity as you do that to give the gospel to those that are persecuting you. 
How often did Paul, when he was being tried as a follower of Jesus Christ, proclaim the gospel to the Roman officials who were trying him? And if you find yourself in that situation, no matter who it is that might come after you, God, God has allowed it, and the purpose of it is that you might have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And by the way, let me back up for just a moment and note this. If we as a church in America are not faithful to the call that God has given us to be His witnesses here and now in this day and age, God may use persecution to stir up and drive out the church in America to be His witnesses as He has called us to be. If we won't do it by choice, we'll have to do it by force. And the Lord will use persecution like He has done so many times throughout church history to drive His people to do what He has commanded them to do and what we ought to do by choice. But if we won't, the Lord will make it happen. But as a result of that, many were saved. When, when Paul witnessed, people got saved. He writes to the Philippian church. He's, he's a prisoner of Rome. And he says, I want you to understand, brethren, the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather into the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palaces and all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Exactly what Jesus said would happen. This is what's going to happen, and here's the reason for it. And Paul is in prison simply because he's a follower of Jesus Christ. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel, and people get saved. And so as he writes the end of that letter, he says, All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Hey, I've been a prisoner in Rome, and I've had contact with Caesar and his household. And many in Caesar's household have accepted Christ because of my witness, because of my imprisonment, simply because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And then there's a wonderful promise here that the Lord gives in verse 11, that God will give the words to speak in that day when they'll lead you and deliver you up. Don't take thought beforehand what you shall speak or premeditate. You don't need to worry about, you know, what am I going to say? Because he says, it will be given you in that hour what to speak. And it won't be you, but it'll be the Holy Spirit. <coughs> As Luke writes of these words of Jesus, he says, they will lay their hands on you and they'll persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts not to meditate before what ye shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. He promises, I'll give you, I'll give you the words to say and your opponents won't be able to argue successfully against you. Those words will be so full of wisdom that your enemies who have brought you up on these charges are going to be dumbfounded. They may try to respond, but they'll know that their responses are feeble because what you're declaring is truth, and they know that whatever they say doesn't hold water. But thankfully, you know, it's not up to us. If we'll just be willing to say what the Lord gives us to say, He'll give us the words to speak in that hour. How to present the gospel to them in a way that it can be used of God to bring conviction in their hearts. And they may not believe they may not accept it not everybody that heard paul preach did but nonetheless the opportunity is there and that's why god is going to allow this take heed to yourselves you're going to be persecuted for my namesake but the reason is so that you can be a witness for me and then lastly 
He talks about the perseverance in suffering when he says in verse 13, You'll be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Understand, we're not saved because we endure. We endure because we are saved. In the parable of the sower, Jesus spoke about those who hear the word and receive it with joy, but when they face suffering, persecution, or tribulation because of the truth, they fall away. They were never truly followers. They never had it really solidly in their hearts. They made an emotional decision, and then when it cost them something, they turned away. John would write in 1 John 2 and verse 19 about those who, he says, went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. One of the things that happens when the church is persecuted is the true believers endure, and the shallow false believers, those who don't really have, have never truly been born again, will fall away. They won't endure the suffering. The writer of Hebrews states that we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. But I do want to stress, and the thing that we need to understand is that true believers endure not because of themselves, but because of Christ. We will endure because, not because we are holding on to Him, but He is holding on to us. And over and over again, we've heard that testimony. If you read the, the writings of those who have suffered for the cause of Christ, you'll find that theme over and over again. As they write of what they're experiencing, they will tell you that it is Christ that is holding them. It is not them that is holding faithfully to Christ, but Christ who is holding faithfully to them. They don't turn aside not because of themselves, but because of Christ. And so Paul would write, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The writer of Hebrews says, He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, all the way to the end, because he ever lives to make intercession for them. And Jude would write, Unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Unto him that is able to keep you from falling. I've shared that illustration many times, but I, I go back to what the Lord said to Peter before he was crucified. And he's, Peter's saying, Lord, I'm gonna, I would never deny you. And he's, the Lord says to Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you as wheat. Peter, you're going to fall. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Peter, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me, but you're not going to desert me. Why? Because I have prayed for you. And the Father is answering my prayer, and because of my prayer, you will not fall away. And you can be assured of this. Your Savior is praying for you. If He truly is your Savior, He is praying for you. And you will not fall away, not because of you, but because He is praying for you and He is holding you. And you may deny Him, but you'll never desert Him, not if you truly are His, because He will not let you. He is holding on to you. And those that desert Him simply indicate they never actually belong to Him. So as Christ writes of this, and again, these, these are things that this is the end of the age, but this is the age in which we live. And we shouldn't be surprised, again, if we have to endure suffering because of our faith, if it happens to us. And we may feel like sometimes in America it can never happen to me, but yes, it could. 
And it shouldn't surprise us the source of our suffering. It shouldn't surprise us when some pastor or church leader who claims to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that denounces us, maybe even brings charges against us for standing up for the truth and simply declaring that we believe the Bible is God's word and we believe what it says about the only way of salvation and about righteousness and about sin and ungodliness and we proclaim that and we shouldn't be surprised at who is the one that brings up those charges against us. But if it happens, if God allows it to happen, it is in His will and He will keep us and He has allowed it so that we might be able to be His witness. He'll give us the words to say and He'll keep us in that hour. And you will know, if that ever happens, you will know more than you have ever known the keeping power of your Savior because you will testify it wasn't me, it was Him. Let's stand together for prayer. Father, we thank you for these words of warning and, and uh, words of preparation that come from the mouth of our Savior. And Lord, we do thank you that you are keeping us, that Christ is praying for us, that our faith would not fail, and that no matter what the test is that comes to our life, that we are safe and secure because of Christ. We are in His hand and He is in your hand and nothing and no one can ever take us out of that place of safety and security and we thank you for that. And Father, if it is your will that we suffer for your sake, help us not to be surprised, help us not to be ashamed, but Lord, give us a boldness to witness for you in that hour and to speak the words that you would give us to say that we might be a witness for you even to those who need to hear. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.